0: pause and pray before we think about this together loving God we thank you for the privilege again of meeting around your words as we do that we come to you and ask for the help of your spirit and to bring your truth to light up again the Lord Jesus to us to show us his glory, to show us your mercy in him. And God, as you do that, may we be changed um, from within. Lord, give us hearts that just long to be changed by your word this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to take a moment and think of a time that perhaps you have felt ignored or unnoticed in a group of people. Perhaps you felt unimportant or unworthy compared to the attention other people were given. Perhaps you can remember days at school um, or work where you sat unnoticed while it seemed like everyone else engaged in conversation and organised their socialising without any notice of you. Perhaps you can remember being the last person to be picked for the team in PE. That was me. Um, Patrick, a little while ago, was showing me some football skill and he said to me, Dad, you give it a go. So I give this my my best attempt. And he said, Dad, I have never seen anyone do it like that before. So sometimes there are valid reasons that you're the last person picked for the team. Perhaps you've experienced favoritism within the family, where one sibling is obviously recognized more, given more time, attention and effort than you. These experiences remain with us. And we don't forget them. They have a lasting impact upon us. And sadly, they, they seem to be the norm in every sphere of society. And sadder yet again, this can be the experience within the church. But this should not be. And so James addresses this issue of partiality or Favoritism. He exposes it to these believers and he provides the remedy to cure it. James's remedy is God's glory and God's judgment. And that is what I want us to focus our time on this morning. Firstly, let's think about God's glory. Look at verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as ye hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Some translations say the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Others say, as I have just read, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Glory. But either way, James is wanting us to think about the glory of Jesus Christ. He wants us to take this sin of partiality or favoritism and place it in light of the glory of Jesus Christ. Now in the Old Testament, glory was God's personal presence, his revealed character. Who he was. We we often think of of glory as as weightiness or overwhelming. Something of great importance. There's nothing more important or greater. Nothing deserving of more honour. Glory is for God and his complete otherness. In Exodus 33... This was after the incident of the golden calf. And Moses is pleading to God on behalf of the people after their sin. And as Moses is speaking with God, God reiterates his command to Moses to lead the people to the promised land. And he also reiterates his promise to be with his people. And then Moses asks the Lord's, He says, please show me your glory. Reveal yourself to me. And the Lord said that his glory would pass by. And so the next morning, Moses went to the top of Mount Sinai as God had commanded. And we read then in Exodus 34 verse 5, the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there, And proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So, God reveals his glory to Moses, and his glory is grace. Now, Jesus comes, and John says in John chapter 1, that we have seen the glory of God, full of grace and truth. You see, Jesus is the glory of God. Jesus is God's very presence, his full revelation. His goodness and grace and compassion primarily displayed at the cross where Jesus died in place of sinners. There's no one greater, there's no one more important, there's no one worth more honour than Jesus Christ. Now, why does James draw us to the glory of Jesus Christ. Well, the believers he is writing to, they are being drawn to a glory in people. They are recognizing a worldly standard of glory rather than the glory of Jesus Christ. And we see how this is played out. Look at verse 2. a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. James says, these believers, you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, well, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. You see? They've been impressed with the rich man. They've been drawn to his glory, it has overtaken them. I think we can identify with this to some measure. Perhaps someone comes in dressed particularly well, perhaps someone pulls into the car park driving a particular car, and we just can't help be be drawn to them. And James says that when this happens, he says, Have you not then made distinction among yourselves? and become judges with evil thoughts. Now, you made distinction within yourselves. It is the same thought as chapter 1, verse 8, where James refers to the believers as as double-minded. He says, you have made distinction within yourself. Your heart is divided. You're inconsistent. You are double-minded. And more than that, you have become a judge. You've set yourself up as God, taking it upon yourself to determine the worth of a person. And all this is driven from evil modus from within, the divided heart. Believers are showing favoritism to one person over another, based on externals the ring, the clothes, the whatever. And it's robbing Christ of glory. Today we can easily be drawn to the rich man. Drawn to the glory of the externals. Perhaps drawn to those who are useful to us. Drawn to those who are able to give us something that we want. Perhaps we are drawn to those with financial resources, thinking, even perhaps thinking, oh, how they could be put to good use in our church here. Perhaps we're drawn to those of a particular age, or perhaps those with particular skills or talents. Perhaps we're drawn to those people who who provide us with stimulating conversation, those with common interests. We think, oh, well, they would make a good friend for me. You see, we we see what they can give to us and we're drawn to them. But perhaps then the person we find a bit quirky, or where conversation is more awkward, there's, there's nothing to draw me to them. There's not much they can give to me. Nothing to draw me to them. Nothing about them that is worth my time and attention. Well, we might as well say to those people, just move away over there. Or just sit at my feet so I can focus on those who really deserve my time and attention. James says this should not be because this is not how God works. Look at verse 5. He says, listen, my brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom of heaven, which he has promised to those who love him? Now, this could possibly be referring to the materially poor, those who are nothing in the world's standards. So, we think of what Paul says to the Corinthians. He says, Consider your calling, brothers, Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. They hadn't much to offer the world. God moves towards the poor and the needy. When Jesus was on earth, he often moved towards those who were thought of as nothing by the world's standards. The children, very different to today... We're thought of as nothing, and yet we see Jesus saying, no, bring the children to me. We see Jesus moving towards the widow of and one so weak and vulnerable to raise her son for her. We see Jesus calling Matthew a tax collector, one who was despised and hated in his society. And as Jesus met the woman at the well who no one wanted anything to do with because of her morally colourful lifestyle, well, Jesus drew near to her. I believe poor may also be meaning poor in the spiritual sense, um, as, as the beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Because, of course, while there are warnings to those who are rich materially, the gospel is not restricted to the materially poor. Listen to the words of Jesus to the church of Laodicea in Revelation 3. He says to the church, you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, they're doing well in the world's standards. But spiritually, Jesus says, you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, Naked. As we thought about a few weeks ago in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich yet for your sake, he became poor, so that you, who are poor and desperately needy in your sin, might become rich. Jesus came to this earth He moved towards the poor and the needy, those who had nothing to give him. He never served himself, but he served others, even giving his life for them on the cross, paying the high cost for their sin, that they would become heirs of the kingdom of God. This is the great glory of Jesus Christ. And if you want to make much of the glory of Christ, then you move towards whoever comes through these doors and serve them and expect nothing in return. James is saying, verse 6, if God chose to move towards those who were poor and needy, then who are you to disregard anyone? And furthermore, verse 6, are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honourable name by which you were called? It seems that the situation here, there were a few wealthy landowners who continued to gain more and more while large numbers of people were forced from their land unfairly and so they became more and more poor. And the wealthy landowners then, they were able to use their money to secure favorable verdicts in the courts. So perhaps perhaps some of the drive was to persecute these people simply because they were followers of Christ. But whatever their drive, James is saying to these believers, why are you so impressed with those who are actually exploiting you? And the reason is they've lost sight of the glory of Jesus. And they just can't help being drawn in by the world's glory. So we've got to ask ourselves, are we showing favoritism? Who do you speak to over coffee? Do you always make a beeline for the same person? Do you ever keep a seat for one person over another person? Why do we engage with one person over another person? Why do you pursue closer friendship with one person over another person? I want to finish this point and and summarize this part by quoting from David Gibson. He says that the message of this part of this wonderful epistle is that only a clear sight of who the Lord Jesus is will let you see other people clearly. He says, unless I am dazzled by Christ's glory, I will be amazed at your glory if you come to me with success, money, prestige, and lots of ways to benefit me. But conversely, unless I am dazzled by Christ's glory, I'll be disappointed in your lack of glory and let down by what you can't give me so may we catch hold this morning of the glory of Christ second remedy to the problem of partiality is God's judgment James has already said we have become judges Now he he shows us how to judge others properly. And to show us, James brings us to the law. Look at verse 8. He says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbour as yourself, you are doing well. The royal law, that is the law of King Jesus, the law of his kingdom. You may remember the lawyer who stood up to put Jesus to the test and asked Jesus, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Well, Jesus refers him to the law, and the man correctly interprets the law as loving God and loving our neighbour. And the man then asks, Wisely, I guess, well, who who then is my neighbor? And Jesus goes on to explain through the parable of the Good Samaritan that basically our neighbor is anyone and everyone that we come in contact with. And the opposite of loving your neighbor is partiality. Notice the contrast. So verse 8, love your neighbor as yourself, but, verse 9, if you show partiality... You are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. James continues his argument, verse 10. He says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. James is saying that every part of the law is equally valid. Now, notice what James says there in verse 11. He says, For he who said, that is God." One writer says, the thing which gives the law its indivisible nature is the character of God who spoke it. So to say that one part of the law does not apply to me is to say that God himself doesn't matter. And James is getting these people to see that if you show partiality, you have broken the whole law. Remember, the opposite of showing partiality is to love your neighbor. Now, none of us here have adequately loved our neighbor as ourselves. We aren't even capable of doing that with our closest neighbors, those in our own home. Not to mention those we meet and interact with on a daily basis. And because we have broken the entire law of God, we deserve entire judgment From God. James says, bearing this in mind, verse 12 Speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Now, this brings us back to what we thought about two weeks ago. Those under the law of liberty or those who have been set free from sin and judgment, have been given new life through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as freed people, those with new life, we follow God's word, we follow his law, not as a means of gaining freedom, but enjoying the freedom that we have already been given by God. So in other words, Those who are under the law of liberty, they've been judged by grace. They have not been judged as their sins deserved. And so James says, you need to judge others as you yourself have been judged. For verse 13, judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Again, this brings us to the teaching of Jesus as he taught through the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18. So there was a master who who came to settle accounts with his servants, um, but one servant owed him a huge amount of money. And the servant pleaded that his master would have mercy upon him. And we're told the master had pity on him, released him, and forgave him the debt. But that servant then later went out and he met a fellow servant who owed him just a small amount of money. And that fellow servant also pleaded for mercy, but the servant refused to show mercy, had him beaten and put in prison. Now the other servants saw what had taken place, and they reported back to the master. And so then the master summoned the servant and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And we're told in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And Jesus concluded, So also my Father in heaven will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. See, those who have known the mercy of God, they show mercy to others. And James is saying, when you understand God's judgment upon you, that will enable you to rightly judge others. Now there may well be those who are difficult to get on with. It feels hard to show them mercy. We want to disregard them because they don't offer us anything. But as James draws us to that final day of God's judgment, it's like he's saying to us, well, what do you hope for from God on that day? Is it justice? Will we say, God, give me justice? Give me what I deserve? No. No. We will plead to God to show us mercy. Well then, says James, Don't judge your neighbor as unworthy of your time and attention and love. Just just treat them as you hope to be treated yourself. Well, James ends on a great note of comfort and assurance. He says, mercy triumphs over judgment. You see, on that final day... We're not dependent on how well we have loved our neighbour or shown mercy. We've already seen that we don't do that terribly well. But we're dependent on how God has loved us and shown mercy to us at the cross of Christ. Because at the cross, justice was done, sin was condemned, and mercy triumphed as sinners received full, and complete salvation. We face the final judgment of God with confidence, knowing that the verdict is already declared. We will be judged by mercy, and mercy will triumph eternally. Glory to Jesus. Let's pray together. Our God, what mercy you have shown to us in Christ. When we stood condemned, Christ stood in our place, took our sin upon himself and took his judgment. We thank you that Christ died, uniting us as one in him. And Father, I pray you will give us Just help us to grasp, again, the true glory of Jesus on the cross. Help us to grasp your mercy. And, Father, whoever we interact with, whether they're your people or not, regardless of who they are or what they are or what they've done or what they're known by, May we interact with them in a way that brings glory to Jesus. May we always be drawn to his glory. And may we interact with them mercifully, knowing how merciful you have been to us. Change us, we pray, O God, by your word and spirit. Amen.